Others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable now and always in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I actually came to faith not far from, from here, at, at school, as a result of, uh, of uh, something that somebody said about Jesus in a, in a RE lesson when I was in the sixth form. So I'd never, I hadn't grown up really being regularly part of a church congregation. I've been sent to Sunday school a bit, but that was about all. And so as a young, enthusiastic uh, Christian who very quickly found himself uh, wearing a don collar and, and serving in a parish, I was a bit shocked by the fact that I would find the church pretty well packed out on Palm Sunday, pretty well packed out on Easter Day, and very few people bothering, it seemed to me, to come to the Holy Week services in between. It seemed like we could go as Christians straight from shouting Hosanna to shouting Alleluia, without recognising that something pretty devastating had happened to Jesus in between. Now, I suspect I was a typically arrogant young man, and I probably uh, was forgetting that most of my parishioners had working lives, jobs, family responsibilities that meant they couldn't necessarily come to church on Good Friday or Maundy Thursday or the night before Easter. And, of course, uh, a good number would have been in church on Passion Sunday, the Sunday before Palm Sunday, when there's a... The, Lectionary suggested we got a real focus on the on the story of the cross, uh, but even then I noticed that was often the Sunday off between Mothering Sunday and then you know, getting into Easter itself. But it left me wondering whether for some of our Christians, some of our congregations, the cross was probably a combination of a kind of Christian logo, uh, something you use as decoration in a church, or possibly a bit of personal jewellery but not really 
that instrument of excruciating torture and death that Jesus chose to suffer for your sake and for mine. And I found I needed to be in church a lot during Holy Week to follow my Saviour on his journey to Golgotha and through to the resurrection. And so when, uh, just over 20 years ago, I became a bishop, I committed myself that every year, hasn't been possible during COVID, but every year I would find a parish somewhere that would agree to take me on for Holy Week and let me preach and take part in their services so I could journey with them on that way of the cross rather than being as bishops often are, flitting from one place to another to another. I need to root myself to make that journey with Christ, that way of the cross, with a parish, with a group of people, year by year. And so our gospel passage today, and I'm going to pick two verses from it particularly to focus on. Jesus called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. Now, first of all, that passage is addressed not just to the disciples, but to the crowd. And when Jesus addresses the crowd, that means everybody. He's he's offering something to the whole of mankind, not just to a select few. Take up your cross. It's for all of us. And that's my theme, I guess, this morning. Of course, we use the phrase in, in, in common parlance that we talk about we all, we all have our cross to bear. And sometimes we can, we can use that to describe something really quite, quite mundane. On, on Friday morning, we were all set up in my office. We, we booked a day out and we we're going to the first day of the test match at Old Trafford. And we even got the taxi booked and at about nine o'clock I got a notification from Sky Sports on my app that said test match cancelled. And, and we checked and even the BBC thought it was cancelled so we cancelled the taxi. And I spent the day you know, reading a safeguarding report and replying to emails and doing lots of mundane office work. Uh, and I went, well, you know, we all have our cross to bear. Not everything happens the way we want it. But that's a long way from the cross that Jesus had to bear. I wonder how those words, when he said those words to that first audience, how those people heard them as people who might well have seen crucifixions being performed by the Roman occupying army on that hill just outside Jerusalem. What did it mean to them more than just a minor inconvenience, the the loss of a day out at a sporting fixture? How embedded was the fear of crucifixion in Jewish society? What Jesus is calling his followers to, the crowd to, is something that is hugely demanding, but at the same time hugely joyful. Some of you will know that I've got a particular interest, fascination really, in the life and teaching of St. Francis of Assisi, the 13th century, even older than this church, 13th century Italian Christian. And as a member of what's called the Society of St. Francis, I believe we don't follow Francis, we follow Jesus after the example of Francis. And there are four main themes, I find, to the way I try to follow Jesus, but taking the example of St. Francis to heart. One, 
very well known about Francis, he loved the creation. But he wasn't just, wasn't just a patron saint of the ecological movement before his time. St. Francis loved the creation because it is the creator's handiwork. In the same way as when my kids were little, we stuck on the fridge all manner of works of art and craft that may not have been particularly brilliant in themselves, but they were precious to us because they were the handiwork of our own kids. And we've got the same with the grandchildren now. Well, Francis taught his friends to love the whole of creation because it is God's handiwork. And if we love God, we love all that he has made. Francis taught his followers to love the church structures, even if the people who inhabited them, bishops and others, weren't always as perfect as perhaps they should have been. He radically embraced poverty so that nothing would ever stand before him and Jesus. And he had, above all, an unswerving focus on the experience of Jesus on the cross. He taught his followers to love Christ on the cross because in the suffering of Christ, we see the love of Christ. And I'll come on to that in a few moments. And Francis, we're told, towards the end of his life, and he died in his early 40s, he didn't live a long um, and healthy life. He actually died in his early 40s after a very serious illness. And we're told in the last couple of years of his life, he was given a very peculiar gift from God in that he was given the marks of the cross in his hands, in his feet, and in his side. And these were discovered on his body when he was being prepared for burial after his death. That God had granted him to bear in his own body the symbols of the marks of the cross on which his Saviour had died, the cross to which Francis paid such great devotion. So how do we proclaim this taking up of the cross, the cross today, in a context that's 175 years on from the foundation of ministry in this building, in this place? Let me suggest just three things to take with us to focus on. Perhaps not for the whole 175 years to come, but maybe just for these next few months to think about. Well, firstly, the cross is the gateway to life. It's, it's more than just the escape route from death. John 3, 16, I've got the, uh, the reference uh, on my mask, so that when I'm out and about wearing my mask, people can ask me what on earth John 3, 16 is all about. It ends on the crescendo that people will have everlasting life. Those who believe in Jesus will have everlasting life. And everlasting life isn't just something that happens the other side of your funeral service, the other side of the grave. It's something that begins as soon as Jesus Christ becomes part of your life. As I said, actually, Jesus came alive to me, uh, not very far away from here, as a result of a chance remark in an RE lesson at the grammar school that got me puzzling enough to believe that maybe the resurrection was true. Maybe Jesus had risen from the dead. And if he had risen from the dead, that made the world a completely different place. And what I found was that that made an immediate and profound change to my life. I stopped being obsessed by worry. As a teenager, uh, not uncommon, I suspect among teenagers, I would lie awake in bed at night constantly worrying about the things that might happen the next day, everything that could possibly go wrong 
even the most unlikely things. And yet almost as soon as I accepted Jesus into my life, it was like a, a light switch clicking or something. It, I knew that there was a God who loved me and cared for me. And no matter how tough the next day might be, and some things might go wrong, that I wouldn't be facing it on my own. I'd be facing it with him. And almost immediately, I found I could get to sleep much more easily than I could before. I could hand over my cares and my worries to God at night. Leave him in charge for the next eight hours while I caught up on my sleep. The cross, for me, was the gateway to life. This world is not just a waiting room for eternity, to be endured for the sake of something better beyond the grave. Yet at the same time, heaven does matter, as Paul says. St. Paul, if there's no resurrection, we above all are most to be pitied. I remember when I was, again, first studying theology, reading a book by, I think, some eminent academic somewhere in Europe who was arguing that, that Christians didn't really need to believe in heaven because uh, this life was pretty good anyway if you were a Christian. And then I thought, well, maybe if you're sat in a, in a very pleasant university town somewhere with, with professorial tenure until you choose to retire, maybe life is good enough. But if you're the sort of Christian I was hearing about more as I read in other places, African woman or somebody being persecuted in, in Asia for their faith, well, actually, heaven does matter. The fact that there is that eternal reward to be with God, with Jesus Christ forever, is what makes this life make sense. This is the good news that we can share. Life now and life beyond the grave. Not just pie in the sky, but some jam where I am. Of course, that doesn't mean the Christian life is without troubles. Uh, back in my university days, I, I, I took along with uh, other friends. We, we had a mission, and John Stott came and ran the mission for us in Cambridge. And uh, I took a, a group of my friends, and of the course of the week, that three of them became Christians. Uh, and one of them really held out the longest. And we, we went to these talks by John Stott every night. And the one that finally convinced him that Maybe Christianity was true. Maybe he could pray that prayer and give his life to Jesus. It was called What's the Catch? And it was when John Stott explained that the life of a Christian would not be all kind of wine and roses. It would be a life that required some demands of us, that made challenges for us. That, he said, at last, David, he said, this is a God I can believe in because he's telling me there'll be times when it's tough. So the cross is the gateway to life. But the cross also, St. Francis found, calls us to stand ready to relinquish everything in order to receive back what God chooses to give us. Those who want to save their life will lose it, today's gospel puts it. If we're stumbling along after Jesus, trying to bear the weight of the cross that we're carrying, we won't have much capacity for extra bags and baggage. It's right and proper, I think, that we use the same word possession to describe our own belongings, and my iPad, my phone, as we do to describe what the devil wants to do to us. Because all too easily the things that we possess, we think we possess, become things that possess us. 
St. Francis understood that. That's why he gave everything away in order to radically follow Jesus without any possessions. And remember the story of Jesus and the rich young man, a man who wanted to follow Jesus but couldn't bear to part with the things God was calling him to part with and who just went away sad. We have to be ready to give up everything on the way of the cross. And I recall again, as I was struggling with my emerging sense of vocation, uh, where would it lead me? Away from the comfortable life I perhaps imagined I would have as a mathematician and academic, and having to be prepared and praying hard, and one, one night finally being able to say, Lord, whatever it is you ask, me to give up, I, I, I give it up now. And finally that God has given me more than ever I could have asked for or hoped for or desired and far more than I've ever deserved. But I had to get to that point of saying everything for you, Lord. And lastly for me, the cross begins with Love. The scripture says the world should know we're Christians by our love. The love that is God's love that's reflected in us. Again, John 3.16 begins with God so loved the world. I remember visiting here a few years ago when all the extensions and renovations had been done. And it was a Saturday and it was like an open day and there was like a fair going on in church and outside in the grounds. I remember Steve and I walking around and I was just amazed at the variety of people who were here. It wasn't just the congregation. There were some ladies in very strict Islamic dress just with their eyes appearing. Uh, um, and lots of folk who were obviously part of the local community. And I thought, yeah, that's really, really important. There is a love here that can be seen, that is tangible for the people around. A few years ago, I spent some weeks in the Diocese of Peru, a part of the Anglican Communion in South America where the church was growing quite rapidly at the time. Growing rapidly, uh, but the bishop there, the Bishop of Peru, he said to me, David, I've got one simple rule. I've got lots of congregations growing and they all want to be parishes. But I tell them this, you can only become a parish when there's something tangible, visible that you're doing in your community for those in the greatest of need. It might be a project helping people with few skills to um, develop some talents to get a job, or it might be helping very poor people to learn how to cook more cheaply than perhaps the way they were, or might be um, producing crafts and goods that could be sold in the international market. There had to be something. You can be a congregation and just enjoy worshipping God and fellowship with one another, but you ain't a parish until you're actually doing something tangible that meets the need, the human need of the community in which God has placed you. We're true to the cross when we reflect the love of the one who refused to summon the armies of angels who might have lifted him off it, but instead bore the pain, bore the suffering, bore the death out of love for you and me. If he loved us so much, how can we not love those whom God has placed us among? So this is the love that this church building and this church community 
have stood to proclaim and live out now for 175 years. This is the love that's been shown forth in worship, in evangelism, in service for a century and three quarters. Today, as we give thanks for the inheritance of faith into which we're called, let's once again commit ourselves to take up our crosses and follow him for whose sake we bear the name Christian. Amen.